Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. I'm your host and narrator, Springheeled Jack, and we're going to get started today after just a few brief disclaimers. First of all, the show might offend you. If you're easily offended, please turn the show off and spare me the negative reviews on the podcast store, or the iTunes store, whatever the fuck you call it, uh, because you won't like the show. This is your first and final warning. Second, I use advertisements in this show that I do not own the rights to. They are the creative property of Rockstar Games. That is all. Hi, I'm Sue Murray, and I want to be your next governor. I know how to lead from the front. I used to be a school teacher. I know what's best for San Andreas. Many of our leaders aren't doing their homework or studying like they should. You're not living up to your full potential. I know how to use third grade academic terms and talk down to a room of hyperactive, immature morons to get what I want. I can get things done. I'll make sure the 1% looks after the rest of us like they should. That you get what you deserve from people that work hard. Vote for me for governor. Finally, you can play video games without gameplay. Available on the iFruit phone, drone, and all overpriced tablets, it's Digifarm. All the mind-numbing tedium of an agrarian lifestyle combined with the soul-crushing loneliness of the internet in a game truly worth 99 cents. Digifarm. Finally, you're actually watching the grass grow under your feet digitally. I'm a tiny farmer. I click on buttons and watch plants grow. If I get it has an incredible sense of achievement. Buy sprites. Feel better about yourself. Do it again. Awesome. The Digi family of mobile games. It's a revolution in human interaction. It's a revolution in social. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for tuning in. As I previously stated, I am your host and narrator, Spring Heel Jack. And you longtime listeners, or just you listeners of the show, have been around long enough to know that every summer I like to do... Either horrifying tales from the road, some sort of travel ghost story, or tourist spots in California because inevitably most of you guys are coming here anyway. It's not that I have a whole bunch of pride in my state or anything, because I don't, but there are some interesting stories and I have no shortage of books on them. So today I will be discussing Spooky California. I think I have some good ones that you guys might not have heard before. This book was written by a tourist to California that is telling their story throughout the book. And uh, you guys know how I feel about tourists, but this book is pretty good. This first story is called Milk Bottles, and it's about Yuba City, which I have never heard of, coincidentally. I took over the family business when my father died. We owned the most successful grocery store in town and money was coming in hand over fist, until the Great Depression hit. Even then, though, things weren't too bad for me and the missus. After all, people still needed food and supplies to go on living, so the townsfolk kept coming to our store. I kept prices reasonable, unlike some of my fellow merchants, so folks came to us long after the other stores went out of business. We managed to scrape by with enough food to feed our, our twin sons, and even had a small toy or two to give them at Christmas. My wife had a talent for making wonderful toys out of the odds and ends left over at the store, which came in real handy during the holidays. 
Here you go, little Billy. I made you a I made you a toy car out of a cabbage. <laughs> I made you a Mr. Potato Head out of a potato. Yes, we had a good life, even in those hard times. <laughs> I made you a home out of a banana box. <laughs> uh, Great Depression. Our only sorrow was the lack of a little daughter in our lives. The doctor told me, and the missus, that we couldn't have any more children. One less mouth to feed, my wife said bravely when she heard the news. But I knew that she was hurting inside. Every once in a while, when one of our customers came into the store with their baby girl, my wife would get teary-eyed and hide in the back room to compose herself. Sometimes she wouldn't come out until the baby was gone. I wanted to help her, but what could I say? I was hurting inside, too. About a month after our first visit to the doctor, a new face appeared in my store. A small, thin woman with dark hair, a narrow face, and faded blue eyes stood peering in the window. Just another poor, bedraggled woman struggling to feed her family, I thought. I saw them all the time, their faces careworn and blank. The Great Depression created hundreds of them. Seeing them always reminded me that I was once that I was one of the lucky ones and still had enough money to feed my family. I knew all my customers, as well as everybody who lived and worked in the neighborhood, but I had never seen this broad before. She must be one of the migrant workers come to town to help with the harvest, I thought. Only here for a few weeks, and then gone like a fart in the wind. After hesitating on the doorstep for a few moments, she came into my shop carrying two empty milk bottles. Wordlessly, she placed them on the counter in front of me. I gazed into her eyes, waiting for her to ask something. She just stood there, though, looking at me hopefully. Perhaps she doesn't speak English, I thought. I took the empty bottles and replaced them with full bottles, taking in her tattered dress and worn face. I asked for only half the going price. I wasn't really surprised when she did not reply, probably because she had no money at all. I watched her pick up the milk bottles and leave the shop. I suppose I could have gone after her to demand my money or called the police, but I decided not to do either. I saw the need in her careworn face. A long time ago, I had decided that no one in my neighborhood was going to starve. Not while my grocery store was still open, at least. Man, good for you. That's commendable. The woman was back the next day with two empty milk bottles. She placed them on the counter, still wordless. Again, I looked deep into her eyes, and I replaced the empty bottles with full ones. Again, she took the milk without paying and hurried out the door. She looked so worried that I began to wonder if she had a job at all. Perhaps someone at home was sick, and she'd had to quit her job to nurse them. That night over dinner, I told my wife about the woman. She suggested that I offer the woman a part-time position cleaning the store if she came back again. I was pleased with the suggestion, and decided to do so at the next opportunity. My wife is a real gem of a woman. Given the chance, I'd marry her again. Sweet. The woman came the next morning for the third time. She exchanged her empty bottle, uh, empty bottles for full without saying a single word to me. I tried to talk to her, telling her about the part-time position cleaning the store. But she acted as if she did not hear me at all. Her blue eyes were desperate, and she practically ran from the store with the milk. Her urgency is what worried me. I hesitated for a moment, then closed up the grocery store and followed her, wondering if I could do something to help. To my surprise, the woman headed away from the migrant camp. She walked rapidly, head down, across town, and went into the local graveyard. I followed, puzzled. What was she doing here? As I watched, the woman hurried up to the stone marker and disappeared into the ground. 
I rubbed my eyes in disbelief. She had melted into the ground like a specter. I shivered, suddenly chilled by what I had seen, and then I heard the muffled cry of a baby coming from the ground underneath the stone marker where the woman had disappeared. It was a weary cry, as if the baby had been weeping for a long time and nobody expected anyone to come to it. For a long moment I was frozen to the spot. Then I came to my senses and ran back to the store to phone the police. Within minutes the graveyard was swarming with people. Several workers started digging up the graveyard where I had heard the crying. When the casket was open, I saw the woman who had visited my store lying dead within it. In her arms, she held a small baby girl and two full bottles of milk. The infant, miraculously, was still alive. The police rushed the baby to the hospital, where she spent several days being nursed back to health. I brought my wife several times to visit the little girl while she was at the hospital. We spoke to the proper authorities about adopting her as she had no family other than the mother with whom she'd been buried. By the time she was ready to leave the hospital, she was officially ours. We named her Helen, which was the name on her mother's grave. We still have the milk bottles that her mother's ghost used to save her life. When she's older, we'll tell her the story. And she will promptly not believe you. I feel I wouldn't. Interesting. This next one is called The Spook of Misery Hill from Pike City. Another place that I've never heard of. No one ever thought Jim Brandon would amount to much. Yeah, Jim Brandon, you lazy fuck. Kinder folks called him thriftless. His creditors used less kindly terms, and Jim would walk the other way if he saw any of them approaching. So we were all surprised when Jim took it in his head to work at the abandoned mine on Misery Hill. Old Tom Bowers used to own the Misery Hill claim. He was a bit of a hermit, that old Tom. He stayed out by the mine and didn't come to town much. He didn't like the rough crowd that gathered there to drink and spend their gold unwisely. One day, old Tom went missing, and we found him buried under a landslide. Despite a decent burial, old Tom's ghost kept walking around the mouth of the mine at night, scaring anybody who went near it. At least that's what folks claimed. Well, Jim Brandon decided the stories about the mine were all hog shit. He set to his mining with an industry of spirit quite out of character for him. He got the mine up and running, all quick-like, and started paying off his creditors and began making a name for himself among the fellow miners of his. One day, old Jim came into the bar and complained bitterly about some upstart who was working the claim behind his back. How can you tell? asked Red Thompson, one of Jim's buddies. Every morning when I get to the mine, the sluice is open and the water's turned on, Jim growled. I've searched high and low for that no-good claim jumper. Just wait until I get my hands on him, though. I'll fuck him up proper. Sounds like somebody's playing a joke on you, Red said calmly. They'll wish they hadn't messed about with me when I get through, through with them, said old Jim, slamming his fist down on top of the bar for emphasis. Maybe it's old Tom Bowers come back to work his claim, Lester Mann called out from his place further down the bar. That's bullshit, Jim Brandon replied, and he stomped out of the bar. Everybody chuckled a bit at the joke being played on Jim and then forgot about it, but Jim was sure that it wasn't a joke. Somebody was jumping his claim and he aimed to stop it. That night, Jim loaded up his rifle and crept noiselessly towards his camp, waiting for the claim jumper to appear. 
The wind was whispering eerily through the trees overhead, and the moonlight kept flitting in and out of the clouds. Jim's skin prickled, and he gave a sudden shiver of fear. There was no sound except for the wind and the murmur of the river. No night creatures called, no hoot from an owl. Nothing. Jim didn't like it one bit. The moon disappeared beyond a large cloud in the darkness, and Jim saw something shining ahead of him. Goosebumps broke out on his skin. Jim had to draw a few calming breaths and mutter aloud, I don't believe in ghosts, several times before he felt calm enough to walk toward the light. As he drew near, he saw a glowing piece of paper tacked to the trunk of the tamarack tree. The words on the paper said, Notice I, Thomas Bowers, claim this land for, for mining. Jim reeled backwards with a gasp of terror and crouched down on the ground with his head between his knees for several long moments. I don't believe in ghosts, he mumbled over and over again. But suddenly he was angry. That claim jumper's trying to play tricks with his mind, he thought. He leapt to his feet and reached out to rip the paper from the tree trunk. Although, immediately, the strength left his arm and it fell limp at his side. Jim stood frozen in place, his body shaking. He closed his eyes, trying to convince himself that there was no notice on the tree. It was just a trick of the moonlight. When he opened his eyes, the glowing notice was gone. Jim drew in a shuddering breath, trying to pretend that everything was normal. But then he heard it, the sound of water flowing through a sluice and a crunch of a pick in gravel. The glowing notice was instantly forgotten. Jim clutched his rifle and hurried toward the sluice. Behind him, the glowing notice reappeared on the tree, lighting the path toward the Misery Hill Mine. Jim rounded the final corner and saw a man working at the sluice. He brought his gun to his shoulder and took aim. As he fired off a shot, he got a good look at the man. The light from the glowing notice revealed a tall, lanky man with tangled white hair and a white beard covered with dirt and debris. The man's skin was gray and rotting, and his eyes blazed with fathomless dark sockets. The dead face turning to look at Jim was that of old Tom Bowers. Jim shouted in terror as the shot passed harmlessly through the dead miner's corpse. A look of deadly fury creased the withered, rotting face. Slowly, the ghost raised his pick and shovel, pointing them at Jim. Then old Tom sprang forward, his blazing eyes fixed on his quarry, and raced towards the terrified man. Jim screamed and ran for his life down the hill through the woods, ducking under tree limbs, jumping over rocks, and scrambling through the scrub. He could hear old Tom behind him, his dead feet pounding heavily on the ground. Neither the branches that pummeled Jim's face, nor the rocks and rubbles, rocks and rubble that tripped him seemed to bother the corpse. It was gaining on him. Jim saw the lights of Pike City ahead. The saloon was full of miners celebrating a new find. Jim could hear them dancing, singing, and laughing. He pushed himself to the limit, desperate to reach the safety of the saloon. He was almost there when a pair of withered hands closed around his shoulders, tumbling him to the ground just a few feet shy of the lighted doorway. Inside the saloon, a horrible shriek cut through the din. The miners gasped, falling silent as the shriek rose higher and higher, hitting a note that shattered all the glass in the saloon. But then it stopped. The men stared at each other, faces pale, bodies shaking. Some of the men's hands were bleeding from cuts they had received when their glasses shattered. A few of the bravest ventured out into the darkness. Jim Brandon's rifle lay in the road just outside the light from the doorway. 
The ground around it was torn up, as if two people had been rolling and wrestling in the dirt. A few yards away, lying haphazardly, as if he'd been thrown aside at the last minute, were a pick and a shovel with the letters TB cut into the handle. There was nothing else. Jim Brandon was never seen again in Pike City. As for the Misery Hill Mine, none of the local residents go near it, though strangers passing through often report that they've heard the sluice running there in the middle of the night. What's the greatest decade in American history? The 1920s. We led the world in literature, aviation, music, and entertainment. Today, this country's a piece of dog shit. Let's bring back the glories of the jazz age by recreating the conditions that turned America into a superpower. The noble experiment is worth trying again. Vote yes on Proposition 14. Bring back prohibition and usher America into a new golden age. On the inside, you're an adventurer because nothing impresses people like having hobbies. I want to get that outdoorsy vibe, but I'm not an outdoorsy person. I really hate nature. On the outside, nothing impresses people like Crevice. Crevice. The outdoor outfitter that gives you exciting hobbies and ensures you look the part. Hobbies aren't about doing something. They're about seeming interesting. Sports aren't about actually participating. It's about looking the part in the bar. Let's face it. Guys into extreme sports could probably get a lot of chicks if they weren't self-absorbed turds. Crevice. We help you take the inside outside. Crevice. Never stop pretending. This one's called Yorona from Riverside, California. The feeling crept up on him slowly. At first he did not even realize that he was shying away from the shadows, hurrying to get home before dark, glancing over his shoulder as if he expected to see somebody following him. When he did notice these things, he had no explanation for them. He was a retired widower. The days and nights loomed endlessly since he had grown too old to weave shawls, and they were lonely, too, now that his wife was no longer there to share them. But his health was good. He had many friends, and his children all lived close to him. Well, that's good. So now he can live a long time being lonely and miserable. So why did he have this feeling of impending doom? He tried to laugh off the foreboding. After all, he had always had good luck. He was the one who found money on the street, the one who won free drinks at local festivals, the one who always landed on his feet. Things had gone well for him, relatively speaking, all his life. But he had noticed that lately his luck had changed. He began losing things like his glasses, his wallet, the keys to his house. He tripped over his own feet and fell up the stairs. Shit, dude, is he the president right now? He caught the influenza before anybody else. When he tried to hang a picture on the wall, the small mirror beside it fell and broke into a million pieces. Seven years bad luck, he mused as he swept up the mess and threw away the shards of glass. To make things worse, he started feeling as if something was dogging his steps. Every time he left the house, his neck prickled as if it sensed that somebody was watching him. He kept turning around as he walked to see if anybody was following him, but nobody was ever there. His eldest son teased him gently about his strange way of walking, saying that if, we're, if he were not careful, people would think he was senile. Something is coming for me, Holmes, he told his old friend Lupe, as they sat one evening playing checkers on his porch. Something bad. Don't be crazy, Lupe replied. You're just having bad luck. Come to my house Sunday night, Holmes. We're having company over. You can relax and drink and enjoy yourself, eh? It will take your mind off your trouble. He agreed reluctantly, 
Usually, he liked visiting Lupe and his wife, but for some reason, the thought of walking across town after dark made him nervous. His sleep was restless that night, broken by a soft wailing cry from outside his house that kept jerking him back to consciousness. It sounded like the cry of a baby, or perhaps a cat. But when he got up to investigate, there was nothing there. He was heavy-eyed and irritable the next morning from lack of sleep. He grumbled to himself as he went to buy his weekly groceries. He had almost finished his shopping when he overheard a woman talking about Yorona. He froze, his hand clutching an orange, and strained to hear what the woman was saying. There was a car accident last night, the woman told the shopkeeper. Several local boys were killed. I heard the night before the accident two of the boys saw Yorona walking among the shadows, weeping for her lost children. And the next day their car hit a palm tree right where they saw Yorona. The shopkeeper nodded his head. Bad things always happen in the place where Yorona appears. He stood in silence, clutching the orange, remembering the wailing sound that kept him waking up in the middle of the night. Had it been La Yorona, the wailing woman, he had often heard the tales as a boy. The Yorona was a poor young girl who loved a rich nobleman, and together they had three children. The girl wished to marry the nobleman, but he refused her. He told her that he might have considered marrying her had she not borne the three out-of-wedlock children, which he considered to be a disgrace. The girl was determined to have the nobleman for her own, so she drowned her children to prove her love to him. But still, he would not have her, and he married another. Mad with grief, the girl walked along the river, weeping and calling for her children, but they were gone. So she drowned herself. For her crime, her spirit was condemned to wander the waterways, weeping and searching for her children until the end of time. It was said that whenever the wailing woman appeared, somebody would die. He shuddered at the thought and hastily tucked the orange into the basket. After making his purchases, he hurried home. He put his groceries away and then spent some time searching his yard for signs of a stray cat or something that would explain the wailing noises that had disturbed him the night before. But alas, he found nothing. He lay awake for a long time that night, straining to hear a wailing sound, but the only noise was the rustle of the wind in the palms outside his house. He drifted to sleep at last and awoke with a pounding heart early on Sunday morning. Had he heard a cry? The sound came again, and he laughed out loud. It was the clink of milk bottles being delivered next door. He turned over and slept. Sunday evening found him huddled in the warm armchair, listening to Lupe Flores chatter with his guests. Many of them knew the boys who had been killed in the car accident, and the talk that night was of Yorona. Somebody pulled out a guitar and sang a song about the wailing woman that left many in tears. It wasn't until the last guest had disappeared through the front door that he stirred from his chair. He shook the hands of Lupe and his wife and walked out into the dark night. The song about Yorona echoing in his mind. He felt oddly at peace for the first time in weeks, no feeling of foreboding, no shying away from the shadows. He strolled along the street, thumping his cane against the pavement and humming the Arona song. It was nearly midnight, and the street was dark, but the sky was clear and the moon shimmered down upon the wrecked stone chimney of a small house that had burnt down a few weeks before. All that remained was the chimney and the blackened skeleton of the frame of the house. Among the dark shadows of the ruined windows, a white mist began to gather. It moved out into the yard and became the figure of a lovely young girl dressed all in white. Long, dark hair hung loose down her back. He 
He stared at the girl, his heart thumping against his ribs. She moved gracefully, as if she were dancing, and began keeping pace with him along the road. He looked into her face, but she turned away from his gaze and began to weep. He suddenly felt very cold, and his hand trembled on top of the cane. The Yorona gave a moan of agony, and at the sound, a terrible pain shot through his left arm. Steel bands seemed to clamp across his chest. The cane slipped from his hand and he crumpled into a heap on the ground. A long while later, he heard voices above him. They sounded as if they were coming from far away. He opened his eyes for a moment and saw Lupe and his wife bending over him. Yorona, he said to his friend. I saw the Yorona. Shut up, fool, Lupe answered. We've called for an ambulance. Behind Lupe's head, he saw a shimmering figure in white moving towards him. At first, he thought it was the Yorona. Then, as the woman bent over him, he recognized the beautiful face of his wife. He smiled and took hold of her outstretched hand. She lifted him up, and his spirit parted easily from his pain-racked body. Together, they walked away, leaving Lupe and his wife to keep watch over his body until the ambulance came. From somewhere in the shadows, the Yorona gave a soft wail, but they were too involved with each other to pay attention. Well, isn't that sweet? Ooh, this one's called Haunted House, and it's from Fort Bragg, which is a place that I have been. And I would encourage all of you California summer tourists to check it out, too. There's a place called Glass Beach. Very cool. There was once an offshore dump just uh, off the shore of this beach, so all sorts of uh, sea glass washes up on the beach, and the entire beach, for the most part, is old, tumbled sea glass. It's uh, quite a sight. I was working at Fort at a Fort Bragg Lumber Company back in the day. I was a general caretaker for a large number of company pol- properties, both timber and ranch. It was a goddamn lonely job. I spent most days on horseback, riding various circuits that took me into the foothills to check on fences, make sure gates were kept closed, and see that the cattle on the ranches had access to watering holes. My closest friends were my horse, Buck, and a large guard dog inappropriately named Happy. Happy didn't like anybody much, which was high praise indeed, considering that he alternated between despising and loathing the rest of the world. He would occasionally take a swipe at my hand and would growl if I patted him too often on the head. But he was company, of a sort, and nobody ever bothered me when Happy was around. I was courting a very nice young lady in Fort Bragg during my free time. She was a sweet girl. Happy had actually wagged his tail at her once and let her pat him on the head. A miracle. Lydia and I would go walking on Sunday afternoons after church, and her folks had invited me to dinner a few times. I was hankering to get me a wife and raise a family, but Lydia was not the kind of girl to rush into that sort of thing. So my courtship was going a lot more slowly than I would have liked. That's not a bad thing, dude. That's that's an admirable quality. Still, I thought she would probably say yes when I proposed to her next week. I was happily musing on my future with Lydia that Monday morning as Buck, Happy, and I set out for our daily tasks. I was scheduled to ride the longest of my monthly circuits that week, so I had packed my camping gear and several days' worth of food. I was delayed quite a while with a downed fence at the first property, and it was late in the afternoon when I finished my chores at the second. I started riding out towards the old Phelps place and realized suddenly that it was going to have to be my last stop of the day. I shivered at the thought. I usually timed my visits to the Phelps place for around noon. It was an old abandoned property with a monstrous, decrepit Victorian house that was supposed to be haunted. 
It should have been a good resting place for the local deer hunters, but they would not go near it either. The few that tried came away before midnight with tales of ghostly thumping noises, gasps, moans, and terrible wet bloodstains that appeared on the floor of the front porch and could not be wiped away. I'm not sure I want to camp there, Happy, I told my dog as I rode the overgrown trail that led to the abandoned house. Happy growled menacingly, which was his normal response to anything that I said to him. Then he plunged into the undergrowth and, undergrowth and disappeared after a rabbit. Still, I continued now addressing my horse. If any of the fellows at work found out I camped outside the house, they'd never let me hear the fucking end of it. They're always daring me to spend the night there with the ghost of old man Mickenturf. Buck liked it when I spoke to him. He cocked his head and strutted a little bit, enjoying the nice weather and my company as much as I enjoyed his. I pondered the story of the Phelps place as I rode towards the mansion in the quiet of the late afternoon. Phelps was an Englishman who had purchased the land some 20 miles from the Mendocino coast in, in the 1880s. He had built a huge, fancy Victorian house all covered with gingerbread trimmings and surrounded by lovely gardens. He had fancy furnishings, including a piano and a huge library shipped to him from England and brought in from the coast by wagon. Then when everything was arranged to his liking, he had sent out a party he had sent out party invitations to everybody within messenger range, and I mean everyone townsfolk, miners, school teachers, soldiers, ranchers, fishermen, loggers, everyone was invited and everybody was looking forward to the housewarming party. It was set to be the biggest social event of the year with music, dancing, and tons of food. Phelps roasted half a steer in a pit in his backyard. Sawhorse tables were set up with refreshments and drinks were set out on the front porch. People arrived at the mansion in just about every type of conveyance known in the West, in buggies, in wagons, pony carts, on horses, on asses and donkeys, and even on foot. They came from miles around. Everyone who was anyone was there, and quite a number of people who might be considered nobodies were there, in fact, too. In fact, the only one missing was old man McInturf's son-in-law. They had had a terrible fight that afternoon, and the boy had stalked off in a rage, threatening to get even with the old man. Versions of the story were whispered all over the party as the guests mingled and chatted, danced, ate, drank, and danced some more. Around midnight, the fiddlers took a recess to eat some dinner and rest. People broke up into small groups and roamed through the house and over the grounds. Old man McInturf stood on the front porch with some friends, chatting over the drink table. Suddenly there came the thunder of hooves rushing up the lane towards the grand house. A cloaked figure on a white horse rode up towards the lantern-lit porch. McInturf put down his drink. That will be my son-in-law George. Come to the party at last, he told his friends as he went down the steps. George, is that you? He called at the cloaked figure. The cloaked figure stopped his horse just outside the pool of lantern light. There was a sudden movement and then the loud report the loud reports of a gun firing twice. Old man McInturf staggered backwards, shot in the throat and chest. The cloaked man wheeled his horse and fled down the lane as friends ran to the assistance of the old man. Did you see who it was? Phelps shouted, running to the porch to help carry McInturf up the steps. No one had. They laid McInturf down on the porch and tried to make him comfortable. He was bleeding heavily and they were afraid to move him too much. There was some talk of fetching the doctor who was attending a birth and had not come to the party. But everybody knew that it was too late for that. Too much blood was lost. It was pouring from the old man's wounds and had pooled underneath his head. 
McInturf coughed once, twice, a hideous, gurgling, strangling sound that wrenched the heart of all who heard it, and then he died. McInturf's body was laid out on the sofa, and the once merry guests left in stricken silence. The servants came in and wiped the red-brown bloodstains off the floorboards. The next day, a wagon was brought in to the front of the house, and McInturf's body was carried onto the porch. As the men stepped aside, stepped across the place where McInturf had died, blood began to pool around their boots, forming a wet stain in exactly the pattern that it had been wiped up by the servants the night before. The men all gasped in fear. One of them staggered and almost dropped the body. They hurriedly laid McInturf in the back of the wagon, and the pale Phelps ordered the servants to clean up the fresh blood stain. They never could keep that part of the porch clean. Every few weeks, the damp bloodstain would reappear. They tried repainting the porch a few times, but the bloodstain would always leak through. Arrested for murder and imprisoned in the county jail, McInturf's son-in-law died of a blood clot in the brain. A few months later, one of Phelps' servants went mad after seeing a terrible sight that made his head feel like it was going to explode. Folks started saying the house was haunted by the ghost of McInturf seeking revenge. Phelps sold the house a few years later, and it changed hands a few times before being purchased by the lumber company. The house stood abandoned now and was slowly decaying. Hunters claimed that McInturf's ghost still haunted the place. They said that strange lights appear in the window, and horrible sounds could be heard there after dark. Each time I visited the place, which was always in broad daylight, I would look at the sagging front porch to see if there was a bloodstain there. But as far as I could tell, all the boards were weathered gray, just like the rest of the decaying house. As I rode up the lane to the house, Happy burst out of the underbrush, darted through the skeletons of dead apple trees in the orchard, and danced around me and Buck, barking and capering madly. In the late afternoon light, I looked up at the decrepit mansion with its sagging porch, broken windows, and weathered gray warped siding. There were weeds everywhere in the overgrown yard, and the gate the broken picket fence was hanging on by one hinge. I led Buck to the well and gave him, gave him and Happy water to drink. I fed Buck some grain and tethered him loosely to a pine tree. Then I went to check the front porch. There was no blood stain there. I could rest easy. I made a fire on a bare patch in the front yard and Happy and I ate some dinner. I wasn't too keen on the idea of sleeping in the house and had just about decided to bed down outside near Buck when I heard a rumble of thunder. Dusk was coming swiftly, brought on early by the dense clouds gathering overhead. The air was heavy and damp. That decided me. There was no way I was sleeping out in the rain with shelter close at hand. I put Buck into the remains of the old stable. There was a bit of roof left over one of the stalls, so I put him in there and made him comfortable for the night. Then I took my sleeping roll, my rifle, and my lantern out of my saddlebag and Happy and I made it into the house just as a vivid flash of lightning flashed overhead followed by a thunderclap that nearly burst my ears. I lit my lantern and looked around. The house was dusty and mostly bare. A few old pieces of furniture were scattered through the front rooms. I looked up the staircase but decided I'd rather stay close to the door in case I needed to make a quick exit. So I went down the hallway and found a few bedrooms in the back of the house. One room still had a door with a latch and an old iron bedstead with rusty but sturdy springs. I rolled my blanket out onto the bed. Lightning flashed again. In the sudden light, I caught a comforting glimpse through the cracked 
glass of the window of Buck standing in the old stable. Then the heavens opened and rain began pounding down on the house and yard. I closed the door of the room, hoping that this would deter any ghost that might want to visit me, and lay down on the bed. Happy curled up on the floor and started snoring loudly. Even the heavy rain didn't drown him out, but I was used to it by now, and so I fell asleep. I'm not sure what woke me. Perhaps it was the silence. The rain had stopped, and Happy wasn't snoring. My arms were covered with goosebumps, and tiny hairs were standing up on the back of my neck. Moonlight streamed through the broken window, lighting the room. Beside the bed, Happy began to growl softly. Then I heard it. Thump, thump, thump. Somebody was walking down the hall towards my room. Thump, thump, thump. Who's there, I called, grabbing my rifle. Happy was on his feet. The hair on his back stood on end, and he was growling nonstop. Then I heard something cough. Once, twice, a gurgling, strangling, wet sound. The door blew open, and I gave a yelp of fright aiming my gun at the doorway, but in the moonlight, I could see the hall was empty. Happy stopped growling. He prowled out into the hallway, sniffed around a bit, and then came back into the room. I got up, shakily closed the door, and bolted it firmly. I wasn't sure if the thumping sound and the coughing had been real, or all just part of a bad dream I was having, but I certainly wasn't going to take any chances. Happy curled up again and started snoring once again. I lay awake for a long time, listening to the sound of the wind in the trees and watching the moonlight make strange shadows on the room. It was too wet to sleep on the ground outside, and Buck had the only dry spot in the stable. It made sense to stay in the house, but I desperately wanted the night to be over and to leave. I fell into a restless sleep and dreamed I was at a fancy party in a miraculously restored Phelps mansion. I was pouring a drink for a beautiful girl who looked a lot like my Lydia when I heard Happy start to growl. I woke up, sweating, and grabbed my rifle. Thump, thump, thump. The footsteps were coming down the hall again. The bolt flew back and the door burst open. A glowing figure staggered into the room, throat and chest bleeding heavily. It coughed once, twice, a terrible wet sound full of death. Happy took one look at the figure and leapt through the window, glass shattering everywhere. I followed him, ignoring the shards that tore at my hands and shoulders as I vaulted over the windowsill and out into the tangle of wet grass underneath it. Happy disappeared into the woods. I ran into the stable and Buck greeted me with a surprised whinny. I flung myself down in the far corner of his stall. Keeping Buck's large, warm body between me and the haunted house, I stayed there the rest of the night. I waited until it was fully daylight before emerging from the stable. I had bandaged my hands roughly with some strips torn from my shirt. There was glass in some of my wounds, but I hadn't wanted to take it out with my knife while it was dark. I fed Buck, and then went into the house to get my bedroll, my rifle, and my lantern. As I stepped onto the porch, I looked down. A damp, red bloodstain discolored the boards under my feet. I ran into the house, snatched up my things, and left the property as fast as I could. There was no sign of happy, and he did not answer when I whistled and called to him. I decided to return to Fort Bragg, have a doctor look at my hands, and finish my circuit later on in the week. To my surprise, Lydia was waiting for me outside my, my house. She looked pale and upset. When she saw my blood-stained shirt and rough bandages on my hands, she burst into tears. I took her in my arms and asked her what was wrong. Oh, Tom, I've been so frightened, she gasped. Happy came running into our house this morning, all covered with blood. I thought something had happened to you. Father rode out at once to look for you. I've been waiting here in case you came home. 
I told her about seeing the ghost of McInturf, and she scolded me soundly for sleeping in this haunted house and made me promise never to do it again, which I was not reluctant to do. Then she insisted I had that I have the doctor examine my hands. He dug several large glass shards out of my skin, and he also ministered to Happy, which was brave of him. Happy was never quite the same dog again. He was almost friendly to most folks, and he adored Lydia, whom he seemed to think had rescued him from the ghost. Lydia insisted that we get married right away. She said it was obvious that anybody foolish enough to sleep in a haunted house, even during a thunderstorm, needed somebody with sense to look after them. I didn't argue with her. And I switched circuits with another fellow at the lumber company so I didn't have to go back to the Phelps place ever again. Thanks to the internet, your husband or boyfriend is masturbating at least five times a day. It's a fact. 80% of relationships fail because women lure in men with lots of sex, then turn it off and get fat. He's going to cheat, and quite frankly, you deserve it. <laughs> I do! But how can you compete with strippers and porn stars? How do you learn what men really want? Isn't it time you attended some classes at Nightlight's Continuing Education? Nightlights offers courses that will teach you the techniques he's come to expect. Fulfill his fantasies without the messy divorce. Contact Nightlights today and sign up for classes such as Rotisserie 101, Advanced ATM, and Coming Out Swinging for Beginners. Get your diploma in double P. Contact Nightlights today. Men, face it, the male menopause is real. You're going to lose your virility someday. How about now? In the time it has taken to listen to this commercial, you're less virile than you were at the start. You've just wasted a whole lot of sperm. The decline has begun. It is time to fight back. As you start to go gray, get saggy, you're being upstaged by young bucks who will seduce your women and take your fortune. They need to know you're still the alpha. They need to know you're top dog and they're still a little pup. However, staying on top isn't just about jacking yourself with testosterone until you're humping the furniture. You'll need to go big. Showtime, who's boss? Do something really impressive and tell everyone about it. Hike Kilimanjaro, dog sled across Siberia, trek across Antarctica, raft the Amazon. You need an adventure travel service that can take you to the far reaches of the earth and give you the kind of experience you can boast about back home. Show them what kind of man you really are. A man who is fighting for meaning the only way he knows how, by showing off. It's time to take the menopause by the throat and strangle the life out of it. Contact Manipause Adventures today or visit menopauseadventures.com. This one's called Innocencia's Revenge and it's from Santa Barbara. The story began in the grand but lonely home of the village Don. He was a stern man of the old school, who had lost his wife many years ago. He was a tyrant to his servants and to the locals. His manner was that of a judge, stern but fair to those who kept the law. The Don had one daughter, a beautiful girl named Innocencia, upon whom he doted. She was the only person who could make the Don smile after the death of his wife. He considered his daughter the epitome of grace and beauty, and she was carefully kept from the company of local children. In the town lived a sea captain, a hearty, red-faced man with a merry tongue. He had a handsome son who liked to sneak into the Don's garden and talk with Innocencia when she was walking alone or doing her embroidery among the flowers. The boy, Rodrigo. He often journeyed with his father to far-flung places. When he returned, he would entertain the fair young daughter of the Don with tales of his exploits. 
and of the many wondrous places to be found across the sea. After one particularly long journey, Rodrigo returned home to discover that his young playmate had grown into a beautiful young woman. He swung himself up into the branches of, her fav of the favorite tree he used to climb while telling her stories, and paused to consider the matter. Aside from his father, Innocenzia was the only person he loved. Now she was old enough to woo and win if he dared. Innocenzio was sitting in the garden, working on a delicate piece of embroidery. She had not noticed the return of her old friend until he called to her. Upon hearing his voice, she dropped her embroidery and ran to the foot of the tree, smiling eagerly and holding out her hands. Rodrigo leapt gracefully to the ground and took her small, soft hands and his large, rough ones. Something in his eyes told Innocenzio what was in his heart before he spoke a word. She blushed as red as a rose and lowered her eyes while she told Rodrigo how happy she was to see him. Tucking her hand into the crook of his arm, Rodrigo walked her among the roses and spoke to her of love and other bullshit. By the time Rodrigo took his leave that night, they were betrothed, but secretly, for Innocenzia was afraid that her father would not approve of the match. For a month, they met surreptitiously, aided by Innocenzia's maid, Carlotta. Then Rodrigo got a position as first mate on a ship sailing to Brazil. A successful trip would earn him enough money to take a wife and build a proper home. When he returned, he would brave the dawn's wrath and seek Innocenzia's hand in marriage. Each morning, Innocenzia would look out over the sea and pray for the safety of her love, and each evening she would sit opposite her father at the dinner table and plan how she would break the news of her betrothal to him when, when Rodrigo arrived home. Now Carlotta, Innocenzia's maid, also loved Rodrigo, and she was jealous of his relationship with the Don's daughter. So she went to the Don secretly and told him about Rodrigo and her mistress. The Don was infuriated when he learned that his daughter was in engaged to the simple son of a sea captain. He summoned his daughter and bitter words were exchanged. Finally, he forbade the match and ordered Innocenzia locked into the tower room until she came to her senses. For many weeks, she spoke to nobody but her maid, Carlotta the Whore, and was given only bread to eat and water to drink. Still, she defied her father and waited for her love to come home. Rodrigo returned bearing with him a great fortune that he had amassed in Brazil. When he learned that Innocenzio's father had forbidden the match, he went boldly to the Don's grand house and demanded to speak to its lord. The Don refused to see him, and the servants threw him out. Desperate, Rodrigo sent a message to Carlotta, asking her to meet him in the village. When the maid arrived, he sent her back to the house with a letter for Innocenzia, begging his love to run away with him. Carlotta solemnly sware to take the message to her mistress, but instead she, she secretly burned the letter and told Innocenzia that Rodrigo had betrayed her and was sailing back to Brazil to wed a woman he had met on his travels. That doesn't even make sense, dude. Why would he sail back to Brazil if he already met her when he was there? Dumb. Innocenzia was heartbroken, and that night she flung herself out the tower window onto the rocks on the beach below. In his letter, Rodrigo had arranged to meet Innocenzia on the beach at midnight. As he approached the meeting place, Rodrigo stumbled over, over the broken body of his love. With a moan of disbelief, he fell to his knees and gathered Innocenzia into his arms. Carlotta, prepared to lie about her mistress to the handsome young sailor, arrived on the beach moments after Rodrigo and realized that her mistress must have taken her own life in despair over the story. Carlotta was pleased. Now, none stood between her and the handsome Rodrigo. 
Still, she was afraid that Rodrigo would blame her for the death of, his, of her mistress. So Carlotta thought up a lie to cover her evil deed. When Ro Rodrigo looked up and saw the serving maid standing nearby, Carlotta fell to her knees, pretending to weep, and told him that the Don had found Rodrigo's letter to Innocencia and had burned it. Then he had locked Carlotta away from her mistress, forbidding her to serve the girl again. In her place, the Don had sent a local girl from the village, one who envied the Don's daughter and wanted to make her unhappy. The girl had told Innocencia that Rodrigo had betrayed her, and he loved another girl, and was going back to Brazil to marry her. When I heard what evil the girl had done, I went to my mistress against the Don's orders, but I found her room empty. She must have believed the evil one's words and taken her own life, Carlotta told Rodrigo. Rodrigo hugged the body of his beloved to him and wept. Carlotta, afraid that Rodrigo would be blamed for the death of Innocencia, finally persuaded him to leave her body on the beach and to return to his home in the village. In the morning, Carlotta gave the alarm, telling the Don that Innocencia was missing from the tower room. After a short search, the Don's men found the girl's shattered body on the beach and brought her to the house. The Don had his daughter laid out in state in the great hall of the house and with candles surrounding her body. From morning until night, the whole household sat in mourning, grieving the death of young Innocencia. Carlotta dressed herself in black and lay face down beside her mistress's body, moaning and wailing in such an attitude of despair that the other servants took turns comforting her, never suspecting that it was all horse shit. As for the Don, he spent hours upon hours kneeling in his study, weeping for his daughter and repenting of the way that he had treated her in life. That night around midnight, a huge gust of wind burst through the front door, slamming it against the wall. Upon hearing the sound, the Don, who was praying alone in his study, came hurrying into the great hall and went to stand beside his daughter's coffin. From her place beside the body of her mistress, Carlotta sat up and stared towards the gaping black doorway. A small light appeared at the center of the door. It grew brighter, taller, wider. The spirit of Innocencia appeared within the light. She pointed accusingly at the maid Carlotta. Then she raised her arms. The wind whipped around her spectral form, flickering the candles that surrounded her dead body until a spark lit one of the large tapestries that decorated the hall. Suddenly, the great hall was in flame. The burning tapestry wrapped itself around Carlotta, who struggled in vain to free herself as she was engulfed by the fire. Yeah, burn, bitch. Hearing the serving maid's screams, the servants rushed into the room carrying buckets of water, but the fire was already out of control. The fire rose up in a wall, trapping the dawn beside his daughter's coffin. Suddenly, the spirit of Innocencia appeared before the encroaching flames with her hand outstretched to her father. The dawn took her hand, and together they walked through the fire and out of the house. When she had taken her father to safety, Innocencia's ghost disappeared. Down on the beach, the dawn and his servants watched as the fire spread through the ground floor until it reached the secret magazine cache in the armory. The resulting explosion destroyed the house and much of the Don's wealth with it. The fuck, dude? The same guy that built the Death Star built this house, or what? The villagers came running to the scene of the devastation, seeking ways to assist the Don and his household, and just for a moment, the Don came face to face with Rodrigo. In the light of the burning building, the two men stared at each other. Then the shoulders of the older man slumped in sudden despair, and one day the Don had lost his daughter, his home, and most of his fortune. He turned away and buried his face in his hands. Rodrigo hesitated for a moment, then placed a hand on the old man's shoulder. Come, father, Rodrigo said, come and stay with me. 
Gently, Rodrigo led the Don away and took him to live in his little house by the sea. This next one is called Betrayed, and it's from Hollywood. It was a dark and stormy night, which as everyone knows is the very best time for telling ghost stories. Our three teenage grandchildren were visiting us from their spring break for their spring break. And they had spent the day on a bus tour of Hollywood. Now we all curled up in the living room around the fireplace with the lights turned out and listening to the thunder rumbling outside. Fucking bus tours of Hollywood, that's a rip-off. Holy shit. Tell us a ghost story, Grandpop, my grandson Bill said casually. There must be ghosts in Hollywood. Dozens, I said, taking out my shit pipe. Abby, my wife of ugh, 45 years, gave me a stern look. She hated it when I smoked meth in the house, but said nothing. I lit up and puffed for a bit, staring into the flames, letting the pounding rain, the flash of lightning, and the crash of thunder set the mood. When the grandkids began stirring restlessly, and I started experiencing heart palpitations, I took the stem of the pipe out of my mouth and looked at them thoughtfully. The oldest, Claire, was 19 and looked skeptical, which was appropriate. At the age of 19, I was skept skeptical about the whole world and wouldn't have believed in ghosts if one had walked right through my bedroom wall and offered to sell me a sack of shit. Becky was 17 and had a rather nervous disposition. She looked terrified already, and I hadn't even started talking yet. Haha. <laughs> but she was eager, too, and I knew she would feel horribly cheated if I refused to tell them a ghost story. Billy was 15 and absolutely bloodthirsty. He scared me. Some of the urban legends I'd heard him swapping with his friends the last time we visited their home would make my ghost story seem tame. The final character... In the scenario, my wife, Abby, sat rocking in her glider, knitting a scarf. If this makes her sound delightfully old-fashioned, let me rephrase the description. My still-blonde and determined-to-remain-so wife sat knitting a highly modern, fluffy-looking scarf in electric colors, copied from a picture in the latest fashion magazine, which lay open by her side. She gave me an ironic stare. I smiled demurely back, which I knew would infuriate her. And I began. I suppose I could tell you about the ghost in the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel. An old mirror there sometimes shows the reflection of Marilyn Monroe. Man. Ugh. Never, never mind. And I have heard that the ghost of the actor Montgomery Cliff paces the hall outside room 928, where he stayed for several months while he was making a film. I paused tantalizingly for effect and whatnot. Bill leaned forward, his eyes sparkling. Or perhaps I might begin with the ghost of Lon Chaney Sr., who played the original Phantom of the Opera, and who they say may still be seen running along the catwalks of old Studio 28 wearing a dark cape, I continued. These are all actual stories of, of specters in Hollywood. Fun fact, I was going to do a Hollywood ghost story episode, but uh, I decided against it. Thunder rumbled, most appropriately, at that juncture in the story. Becky gave a small shriek of terrified delight. Claire smirked and leaned against the back of her chair. Or maybe I could tell the story of the funeral procession of Bella Lugosi, the original Dracula. You know, the one where a ghost took control of the hearse on its way to the cemetery and forced the man at the wheel to drive them down Hollywood Boulevard? Apparently the ghost would not let go of the wheel until the driver crossed the intersection at Vine Street. People claimed it was the ghost of Bella Lugosi. 
making his way one last time down Hollywood Boulevard as a final farewell gesture to his beloved town. His ghost took control of the car, Bill repeated. Dope. Boring, Claire said. I think I'll go upstairs and read for a while. Go ahead, I said amiably. Meanwhile, I'll tell everyone else my favorite Hollywood ghost story. Claire settled back into her chair. I think I'll stay a while longer, she said casually. I suppressed a grin and told the children the following tale. Around 1900, there was a lovely three-story inn in Beverly Glen where many people stayed overnight after going to a theater. A wealthy landowner was a frequent visitor, along with his very attractive wife. Sometimes the landowner's wife would come to stay at the inn. On one of these visits, she met a handsome young man. He was a bit of a dandy, always wearing outlandish clothes in his favorite color, which was yellow, but the wife liked him very much. Too much, in fact. The landowner's wife and the dandy began meeting regularly, and they always stayed together at the inn. Then a friend of the family told the wealthy landowner about his wife's indiscreet behavior. The man was infuriated. He grabbed a scythe from the family farm and rode his horse into town, hoping to catch his wife and the dandy at the inn. The husband leapt off his horse, raced past the trembling innkeeper, and pounded up the stairs to the room he always occupied with his wife. Bursting through the door, he raised his scythe above his head and cut off the head of the dandy as his wife screamed and shrank away. Yo, that's how you do it. For this crime of passion, the wealthy landowner was executed, and his unfaithful wife inherited all his money. I don't know if she ever went back to the inn where her husband killed her lover, but her, but her lover did return. They say that from that day to this, the dandy's ghost dressed in glowing yellow with a fancy opera cape and a black bow tie around his headless neck, has often been seen standing beside the roadway, waiting for his love to return to him. And in the old roadhouse, the ghost of the husband can be heard bursting through the front door and pounding up the stairs to the room on the third floor where he was betrayed. Thunder rumbled again and everybody shivered. Claire finally spoke. What happened to the inn? It was turned into apartments, I said. Haunted ones. Several of the tenants had mysterious encounters with the yellow dandy, and a couple living on the third floor room were terrified nightly by the sound of the betrayed husband running up the steps. The house is now empty. Well, that's enough ghosts for me, Abby said, casting off the final stitches on her scarf and standing up. I'm going to bed. The grandkids followed her out the door, leaving me alone in my chair, staring at the fire. I reflected for a moment on how lucky I was. I had a wonderful wife, great kids, and the best grandkids a man could hope for. I felt sorry for the betrayed husband who had lost his wife and his life, and had never been able to rest in peace from that day to this. Yes, indeed, I was very, I was very lucky. I took one more riff of my shit pipe and went upstairs to go to bed, because that's how we do it in Hollywood. Your professional life as an executive is spent on a corporate treadmill. Why work out on one? Channel your rage into something positive at the Queensberry Boxing Club. After all those meetings where you've restrained yourself from smashing another doofus with an MBA in the face, now you can take up the noble sport of yuppie boxing. Take out your aggression and harken back to a simpler time when a man like you would have fought with his fists, not his legal team. It's artificial and controlled masculine posturing, just like the rest of your life. Plus, there's something invigorating and uniquely manly about giving another yuppie brain damage. Come by the Queensbury Boxing Club and find out how the fight game can bring out the ultimate player in you. 
On the inside, you're all action because nothing impresses people like looking the part. I want a lot of impressive sports electronics that look great on my desk, but I never use. Crevice. Stop by Crevice and start looking the lifestyle you wish you had. Buy medals for marathons you never ran or a beaten up surfboard and surf wax you'll never use or carabiners, climbing supplies and doctored photos of you on Everest. Plus a thousand other stories you can tell to seem like the adventurer you are on the inside. Crevice. We help you take the inside outside. Crevice. Never stop pretending. Okay, squad. If you or somebody you know would like to host a podcast and you would like to be on the Anthology of Horror Podcast Network, please don't hesitate to reach out to me on Instagram.com slash DukeLandis17. Send me a DM with your idea and we can talk about getting you an audition tape done and sent to me. I am still taking auditions. They are filling up, though. The, sh- the show slots are filling up. So if you have an audition or a show idea that you want to pitch, do it sooner rather than later. And uh, we can talk about what you'd like for the show and what that means moving forward. Also, if you would like access to the premium content for this show, I recently started doing premium episodes on Patreon. And you can become a member of the Anthology of Horror Patreon page by going to patreon.com slash anthologyofhorror. I think that's it. Thank you guys very much for tuning in, and until next time, stay spooky.